Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us, Episode 47, Apollo 15, Part 2, Falcon on the Plane at Hadley. Last time, we were introduced to Dave Scott, Al Warden, and Jim Irwin, the crew of Apollo 15. Their mission was the first of the J missions, which squeezed the last bit of performance out of every component of the entire stack. Apollo 15 would stay longer, go further, and collect more scientific data than any lunar landing mission before it. When Lunar Module Falcon separated from the Command Module Endeavor, we changed things up a bit and stayed with the Command Module pilot Al Warden. The CMP often gets a raw deal in history, not because he stayed behind in lunar orbit, but because people seem to diminish this challenging and fascinating role. But with Warden's job a little more clear, it's time to roll the clock back a few days and rejoin Scott and Irwin on their way down to the lunar surface. This was only the fourth piloted landing on the moon, but NASA was really getting the hang of it because it wasn't all that dramatic. The biggest change from previous missions is that Falcon descended at a steeper angle in order to clear the Apennine mountain range while still hitting their target landing zone. Despite that, they still passed within two miles of the peaks of the range. I know that's actually a lot, but in a vehicle like the Lem, which looks like it would fall apart if you were to direct harsh language towards it, that seems pretty close to me. Like Apollo 12, the crew of Apollo 15 were faced with impenetrable dust as they made the final approach, and were forced to make the landing on instruments alone. 104 hours, 42 minutes into the flight, Falcon settled down in the lunar regolith. David Scott radioed down, Okay, Houston, the Falcon is on the plane at Hadley. The new, longer engine nozzle actually came in contact with the surface and crumpled a bit, but the nozzle extension was designed to do that. The usual phase of stay-no-stay decisions came and went, with no issues prompting a rapid departure. That meant it was time to do something that we haven't done since Apollo 9, a stand-up EVA. This was added so that the astronauts and mission planners would have a little bit more context about their surroundings before committing to a full-on moonwalk. The LEM's atmosphere was vented, the top hatch was opened, and the docking drogue was moved out of the way. Almost exactly two hours after touching down, to the minute, Dave Scott stood on top of the ascent engine and stuck his head up through the hatch. From his new vantage point 23 feet above the surface, Scott was able to spend half an hour taking a series of photos and intricately describing his surroundings. This gave mission planners a chance to pinpoint Falcon's precise location, aiding in the upcoming EVAs, and ensure that there were no big hazards that the lunar rover couldn't handle. SEVA complete, the hatch was buttoned back up, and the crew settled in for a rest period. They had a lot of work ahead of them. After a nice rest period, Scott and Irwin donned their Pliss life support backpacks and got ready for the first of three lengthy EVAs. The suits they wore had been upgraded considerably from those of previous missions. Perhaps biggest among these upgrades was additional flexibility added in the joints, allowing the astronauts to bend more freely. This would come in handy when picking things up off the surface or sitting down in the lunar rover. The life support backpacks also had their capabilities extended, supporting much longer EVAs. Unfortunately, the funding just wasn't there to also upgrade the emergency oxygen supply that rested on top of the backpack. In practice, this limited how far the duo would be able to drive in the LRV. Since they always needed to be able to walk back to the LEM in case the backpacks failed, the performance of the emergency backup dictated the maximum distance allowed. Dave Scott got down on his hands and knees, perhaps a task made easier in the new suits, and slowly backed through the front hatch. 
After descending the ladder, he set foot on the surface and radioed down one of the more eloquent of the Moonwalker first words. He said, As I stand out here in the wonders of the unknown at Hadley, I sort of realize there's a fundamental truth to our nature. Man must explore. And this is exploration at its greatest. Not long after that, Jim Irwin joined him on the plane, uttering the equally inspiring, Boy, that front pad is really loose, isn't it? After collecting the contingency sample, which again is just a rock they grab right away in case they have to end the spacewalk early, and setting up the TV camera, the crew got to work deploying the LRV. Thanks to some clever engineering, this didn't involve a lot of assembly, just a lot of unfolding. Once it was set up, Scott gave it a quick test drive and determined that for some reason, the front steering wasn't working. But with the clock running, there wasn't much time to troubleshoot, and since the rear steering was working, they just moved on. The first destination was a crater on the edge of Hadley Rill, about 2.2 kilometers to the southwest. And at a typical speed of 10 kilometers per hour, they were there before you knew it. They may not seem that fast to you, but you're not the one driving across craters and rocks and bouncing around in 1.6G. So right off the bat, Apollo 15 had doubled the distance that the Apollo 14 guys had walked to Cone Crater. Wheels can come in handy. Though with the rear-only steering, Scott compared the handling to driving a boat. Hadley Rill presented the crew with an incredible sight. The wide, river-like feature appeared suddenly due to the close horizon. The astronauts could look down the slopes, too steep for driving, and see boulders littered around. They could look to the far side, almost a mile away, and see the geological features they had spent so long studying. The rill dominated the view, winding off over the horizon. While near the edge of the rill, the crew took a number of geological samples, carefully and meticulously documenting the context of each sample along the way. And thanks to the LACRU communications package on the lunar rover, geologists in Houston, along with anyone watching the TV broadcast, could ride along with them. After thoroughly documenting their day one destination, Scott and Irwin headed back to the LEM. At this point, they were far out of sight of Falcon, but the LRV used a combination of odometers, gyroscopes, and the angle of the sun to point them back towards their home away from home. Once back near the LEM, the pair got to work setting up another iteration of the ALSEP experiments that were a mainstay of every landing mission. Driving around the LRV came first in the EVA, since if something went wrong and they had to hop back the long distance they had driven, the crew would need as much time as they could get. But with the ALSEP station set up only a few hundred feet from the LEM, there wasn't nearly as much risk if they needed to end the EVA quickly. On the way back was one of the many small moments of the Apollo program that often don't make the cut in retellings. It seemed that the remote camera mounted to the LRV had gotten snagged on a cable, preventing it from moving up and down as much as it should have been able to. If this had been a robotic mission, there would have been little to do except wiggle the camera and hope that the cable came loose. But in this case, Houston just asked the crew to take care of it. Scott reached over, pulled the cable off the camera, and everything was fixed. Putting humans in space may be complicated, dangerous, and expensive, but we sure are adaptable. Finally making an appearance on the lunar surface was the drill originally scheduled for Apollo 13. This was to be used to make a series of holes for a heat flow experiment. Sensors placed at varying depths in the holes would detect how heat from the sun permeated through the lunar surface. But the moon was made of sterner stuff than expected. As Scott drilled a hole, he noticed it suddenly got more and more difficult to proceed until finally the drill got stuck. 
With considerable effort, he eventually wrenched the drill free and started on a second hole. When this too got stuck, Houston, with an eye on his oxygen consumption level, told him to just leave the drill for another attempt on EVA 2. Partially thanks to the high exertion on the troublesome drill, the EVA was cut a little short. Though at 6 hours and 34 minutes, it was easily the longest EVA NASA had performed to date. Once back inside, the crew ate a meal, debriefed Houston with details about the EVA, and started a 7-hour rest period. Day 2 dawned over Falcon, well, the sun moved a little bit in the black sky, and both men clambered down the ladder and onto the dusty plain again. Things started off on a positive note, since it seemed that the Boeing engineers who designed the LRV had been busy during the night. Fresh recommendations were radioed up to the crew, who flipped some circuit breakers, and suddenly the front-wheel drive was restored. Boat driving no more. The agenda today had the pair driving southeast to the area where the Apennine mountain range met the Hadley Plain. By studying this area, they would learn more about both regions, including how they formed and how they interacted. This destination also makes clear why this landing site was chosen. In just two traversals, the astronauts are going to visit several different types of areas, which just happen to be closely clustered together. While exploring the Apennine front, the astronauts noticed a small rock with white flecks and streaks. After duly capturing the context, including photographing it on the ground near an object with a known size and color, it was collected for later analysis. It turned out to be the so-called Genesis Rock, one of the oldest geological samples ever recovered anywhere. At 4.1 billion years old, it wasn't much younger than the moon itself. I sometimes like to imagine the life of a rock like this over geological timescales. It survived countless eons of cosmic bombardment from meteors, sat there as the continents of the Earth shuffled around above it, and somehow happened to be on the surface at the moment that these two strange apes came along and tossed it into a bag. What a confusing moment for a hapless rock. After collecting a bunch of photos and samples, it was time to head back to the area near the Lem. Dave Scott again tackled the stubborn drill left in place at the heat flow experiment, but was unable to make much progress. So instead he moved on to taking a core sample of that area, and the core sample tool promptly got stuck. Well, Houston suggested, maybe he can unstick it on EVA-3. When the crew closed the hatch on Falcon at the end of a long day, EVA-2 rang in at a whopping 7 hours and 12 minutes in duration. EVA-3 would have to be cut short a little because orbital mechanics is the most unforgiving of deadlines. The crew were unable to begin their rest period for a couple of hours after EVA-2, so it would be starting the spacewalk a little late, but it still had to end at the originally scheduled time. This was so that they would lift off at the precise moment necessary to rejoin Al Warden as he passed over the landing site. But even with its truncated length, the EVA wound up being nearly five hours long. Once outside, the crew returned to the area near the Alsep experiments, where the ground was apparently made of unobtainium. They finally were able to pull the core sample free, but left it to pick up later at the end of the EVA. Near the end of the moonwalk, Scott took a brief moment for a small ceremony. The U.S. Postal Service was releasing a new series of postage stamps commemorating spaceflight achievements. So to get in on the fun, right there on the lunar surface, Scott took out a stamp and canceled it, marking its trip to the moon complete. The moment came and went, but it proved to be some unintentional foreshadowing of events we'll get to in a little bit. As they wrapped up their third EVA, Scott and Irwin had one final bit of business to take care of. 
human spaceflight was still in its infancy and was and remains incredibly dangerous. As such, in the 10 short years since the first human flights began, 14 space travelers had been killed either as a direct part of their mission or during training. In recognition of those who gave their lives to this cause, the Apollo 15 crew placed a plaque bearing their names on the lunar surface. Alongside it, they placed a small, action-figure-like sculpture called the Fallen Astronaut. The tribute was made quietly and without public knowledge until after the successful completion of the mission. On the plaque were eight Americans and six Russians, some of whom we know quite well. Theodore Freeman, Charles Bassett, Elliot C., Virgil Grissom, Roger Chaffee, Edward White, Vladimir Komarov, Edward Givens, Clifton Williams, Yuri Gagarin, Pavel Believ, Georgi Dobrovolsky, Viktor Patsayev, and Vladislav Volkov. The last three had been lost only a month earlier in the Soyuz 11 accident. It was a quiet and touching moment, and one that demonstrated the respect that spacefarers from all nations had for each other. With that done, there was nothing left but to head home. Scott parked the LRV about 100 meters to the east of Falcon so Houston could watch their departure via remote camera. In the last moments before heading back to the LEM, Scott turned to the TV camera and said, quote, In my left hand, I have a feather. In my right hand, a hammer. I guess one of the reasons we got here today was because of the gentleman named Galileo a long time ago who made a rather significant discovery about falling objects in gravity fields, and we thought where would be a better place to confirm his findings than on the moon. And so we thought we'd try it here for you. The feather happens to be, appropriately, a falcon feather for our falcon, and I'll drop the two of them here and hopefully they'll hit the ground at the same time. He dropped them, and the laws of physics did their thing, with both objects landing at the same instant. Scott commented simply, how about that? Timing for liftoff was tight, since Falcon would be attempting the first M equals 1 rendezvous around the moon. That is, they would launch and arrive at Endeavor after only one revolution. Ascent got started with a little more excitement than expected. Since all three crew members were from the Air Force, CMP Al Warden thought it might be fun to play Mission Control, the U.S. Air Force anthem, Go Into the Wild Blue Yonder, over the radio. The only problem was that, unbeknownst to Warden, Houston had his radio being piped directly to Falcon. So at the critical moment of liftoff and pitchover from the moon, a tinny rendition of the tune blasted over the airwaves, making it difficult to hear the crew. Nothing went wrong, but if something had come up, then the light-hearted moment would have been extremely distracting and made communication difficult. Commander Dave Scott was, let's say, displeased with the incident. Unauthorized launch music notwithstanding, the M equals 1 rendezvous was a success, and before long, Falcon and Endeavor were together again. The crew got to work transferring equipment and samples from Falcon so they could jettison the spacecraft, its job now complete. When the time came to flip the switch, it looked like there might be a slight pressure leak, so the hatches needed to be reopened and resealed, which seems to be a theme of this flight. After separation, Falcon drifted off and was intentionally crashed into the surface about 60 miles from the newly placed experiments at Hadley. It was around this time that the flight surgeon began to notice something alarming in his data. Without getting into all the medical detail, mostly because I don't understand it, something was wrong with Jim Irwin's heart. He might be having a heart attack. 
I'm not sure where heart attack ranks on the infinite list of possible space catastrophes, but it's got to be up there. When asked how serious it was, the flight surgeon said that it was serious enough that if Irwin were on Earth, he'd be placed in the ICU. But in a way, he was in the best possible place to have a heart attack. Irwin's heart was being constantly monitored by an expert, and he was already breathing pure oxygen. Plus, what could put less stress on the body than zero gravity? With echoes of the Friendship 7 heat shield incident, Houston decided there was nothing that could be done, and thus no reason to freak the crew out. They kept it to themselves, and instead offered cryptic suggestions that might ameliorate the situation. In Warden's book, he was pretty baffled by this decision, as am I. It seems to me that there was plenty that could have been done. For one thing, instead of obliquely recommending additional rest and some medicine that could help, Houston could have just told Irwin to take it easy and take the appropriate treatment. There was a lot of work to do, but Irwin could have been given additional rest and a little less duty ferrying big bags of equipment from spaceship to spaceship. These guys were professionals and understood the risks of their jobs. I don't understand why they wouldn't be filled in. Later analysis showed that the surface crew lacked sufficient potassium to support the strenuous effort of their three EVAs, and that this could have contributed to the heart trouble. In fact, two years later, Irwin suffered his first of three heart attacks. The third one in 1991 proved to be too much, and he succumbed to it, becoming the first moonwalker to die. No direct link would ever be proven between the difficult spacewalks and Irwin's heart trouble, and he had shown some symptoms before the flight, but it certainly didn't help. But all of that is decades in the future. For now, the reunited crew still had a lot to get done. Rather than departing for home right away, Endeavour would remain in lunar orbit for another two days, collecting more photos and scientific data. One of their last tasks before leaving was another Apollo first, deploying a sub-satellite. The small device, ejected from the service module Simbay, would continue to collect valuable data after the crew left. And by monitoring its orbital perturbations, NASA could learn more about the placement of mass concentrations around the moon. Normally, throwing a satellite into a random orbit around the lumpy moon would result in a quickly deteriorating orbit and a crash. But by chance, Apollo 15 happened to deploy their little robotic buddy close to one of the few stable orbits available, and it provided useful data for years. After 74 trips around the moon, Warden fired up the SPS engine and Endeavour began the long journey home. As it crossed the void on the way back, there was typically little to do except monitor systems, perform mid-course corrections, and give TV interviews. But again, Apollo 15 had something new in store. As you'll recall, one of the bays in the service module had been opened up and stuffed full of cameras and instruments. Some of the resulting data was beamed down to Earth, but for the high-resolution film canisters, someone had to go get them. So, the day after departing lunar orbit, the crew suited up again, Endeavour was depressurized, and the main hatch swung open. As Warden poked his head through the hatch, he began the first-ever deep space EVA. With Irwin watching from the hatch, Warden made his way down the side of the service module, using the handles installed for his use. On the one hand, this was a pretty straightforward EVA that drew on the many hours of EVA experience NASA had built up over the years. On the other hand, Warden was crawling out into an unthinkable black void with nothing holding him to the spacecraft but an oxygen hose. There are a lot of harrowing moments in spaceflight, but something about deep space EVAs makes the hair in the back of my neck stand up. 
Warden completed his task with no problems, and all the film canisters were handed off to Irwin before being safely stored on Endeavor. In the interest of keeping things simple, Warden was not provided with a camera. And that's really a shame, because as he turned around, he could see Irwin, half in the hatch and half out, with a giant moon placed perfectly behind him. It was such a good photo op that Warden didn't let the lack of a camera stop him, and later worked with an artist to recreate the view. If you fire up your favorite image search engine and put in Irwin Moon Painting EVA, you should be able to find it without much difficulty. After less than 40 minutes on the side of the service module, Warden reluctantly crawled back inside. 12 days, 8 hours, and 11 minutes after lifting off, Endeavor splashed down in the Pacific Ocean. The mission was a resounding success. Minor problems aside, it was called by some the perfect flight. In a lot of ways, it was the culmination of everything the Apollo program was all about. It had used all of the hard-earned lessons and techniques of the earlier flights to go further, stay longer, and learn more than any previous mission. The J missions were going to be good. Unfortunately, the mission was also marred by controversy. Astronauts are allowed to bring a small number of personal items with them on their missions, in little bags called Personal Preference Kits, or PPKs. Among these were often small trinkets and mementos for friends, family, and colleagues. Months after Splashdown, after the usual worldwide PR tour had been completed, reports started to filter back to Houston that a stamp dealer was selling postage covers that had been to the moon and back on Apollo 15. It turns out that the crew had made an arrangement with the dealer to carry several hundred of these postage covers to the moon and back. To be honest, I don't even really know what a postage cover is. It seems to be pretty similar to a postcard. As part of the deal, the astronauts would be paid now, placing the money in a trust for their children, and the dealer would not sell the covers until the Apollo program was over, or all three men had left NASA. There was no law against this, and not even really any NASA rules against it. But let's be honest, this feels wrong. To add insult to injury, it turns out that Paul Van Huydunk, the artist who had made The Fallen Astronaut, was selling replicas of the sculpture. There is a lot to get into here, but the upshot is that all three men were officially reprimanded and unofficially blackballed. Irwin had other plans anyway and retired immediately. Warden found work at NASA Ames in California and remained with the agency for several more years. Scott remained as an Apollo advisor for a few years before moving on to other roles. None of them would fly in space again. Al Warden's book, Falling to Earth, gets into a lot more detail about exactly how the arrangement worked and how the fallout played out. In his mind, his crew's treatment, and him especially, was unfair. After all, there was no rule against it, and from his perspective, the whole deal was basically arranged by Dave Scott. I've thought a lot about this and have come to a few conclusions. First, there's a good chance none of these guys were ever going to fly again anyway. The closest they got was when they were named as the backup crew to Apollo 17. I believe all the Skylab crews had already been selected and were hard at work training by this point, but don't hold me to that, I haven't started my Skylab research yet. Realistically, their next best shot was on the space shuttle, which wouldn't fly for 10 years. Second... These guys knew something was fishy about this. Why else was the arrangement to not sell the covers until all three men had completed their space careers? If it was necessary to hide it until NASA couldn't reprimand them, then clearly something was up. 
And while Warden makes a good case in his book, he's not faultless in this either. One thing that really struck me was that in the days before launch, Warden snuck out of quarantine to go to a party with some friends. Nothing came of it, but if he had gotten sick, that would have delayed the mission for a month or more, probably making that party the most expensive in history. Warden, and really all of the early astronauts, had no problem playing by their own rules when it suited them. Whether it was accepting free Corvettes, sneaking out of quarantine, or smuggling postage covers to the moon. And third, I think these guys just got unlucky. I think this moment marks the transition of astronaut from the Buck Rogers space cowboy days of Project Mercury to just another government employee, albeit one with a great office view. NASA had never officially approved of astronauts personally profiting off of their roles, but they had also been willing to turn the other way. The job was dangerous, and it didn't pay great, so offers like free cars or lucrative magazine deals were tempting. But at the end of the day, astronauts are just another government employee. Astronauts today would never come close to getting away with half of the stuff these early guys pulled off. And the Apollo 15 crew just happened to find themselves right at that inflection point. The entire incident is an unfortunate stain on a great mission, but one that has thankfully faded with time. I'm happy to see it being relegated to a quirky footnote on an otherwise wildly successful mission and three fascinating careers. Next time, John Young, a man who has also smuggled some things into space, namely a corned beef sandwich, will command the next of the J missions. Apollo 16 will head to the hills, exploring the Descartes Highlands. And I hope everyone got their measles shots because Ken Mattingly is back in the saddle. I don't think you'd be able to pull him out of the command module with a crowbar this time. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. <laughs>